This is Ozarks at Large for Tuesday, November 1st, 2022. I'm Kyle Kellums. And I'm Matthew Moore. This is 91.3 KUAF, a listener-supported service of the School of Journalism and Strategic Media at the University of Arkansas. Today is the opening day for the True Lit Fest at the Fayetteville Public Library. Tonight, New York Times bestselling author and University of Arkansas alum, Ayanna Gray, will talk about her books, Beasts of Prey, and Beasts of Ruin. And later this hour, I'll talk with Newbery Honor-winning author Susan Campbell Bartoletti, who will be speaking about writing children's nonfiction Thursday night. She'll talk about the challenge of writing about topics like Nazism, the development of the Klan, and the Irish famine for young readers. That conversation on this show in about 20 minutes. First today, let's talk about representative democracy. It's kind of our thing here in America, but perhaps we should take that first word, representative, a little more literal. In Arkansas, 89% of state lawmakers are white, 11% are black, and there is just one Latino and zero Asian American or Pacific Islanders in the state legislature. Ozarks at Large's Daniel Carruth has more. For comparison, the 2020 Census Bureau puts about 78% of the state's population as white, with 16% black, 8% Hispanic or Latino, and 2% Asian or Pacific Islander. Joshua Price is deputy director of Arkansas United, an immigrant rights advocacy group, and a former elections commissioner for Pulaski County. As far as representation in government, I mean, there's very little. Uh, we've never had an Asian American serve in the legislature, and we've never had you know any Hispanic or Asian Americans holding any higher offices. When I was an elections commissioner in Pulaski County, that was one of only uh, five Asian Americans in the state that had any position at all. Price says even tracking data on voter demographics in Arkansas can be tricky because registration forms don't require voters to mark race or an ethnicity. Uh, my own mother, who's an immigrant from the Philippines, I looked her up in the van and she wasn't listed as Asian. So I, I like personally inputted it, input the data. I was like, yeah, she's Asian. So, so right there, if we're not tracking the data, we really don't know. But even with faulty data, demographics of eligible voters in the state are changing. And I don't know if you know this, but Arkansas is actually number four in the country for growth of immigrants com- compared to population, that is. This summer, the Northwest Arkansas Council released a study that showed a trend toward growing diversity in the region. As early as 1990, only 4% of Northwest Arkansas was non-white, to around 30% today. If you look at our school districts, which is really, the school districts are at the front line of our demographic change here. And two of our five largest school districts are um, majority-minority school districts. And there's a third that's very close to um, reaching that point. So like in our Springdale School District, for example, I believe is close to 70% racially and ethnically diverse. And I believe our Rogers District is close to 60%. And the number of languages spoken within our districts ranges from, I believe, 30 to as high as 65, 66. And that's reflected in countries of origin also. So there's really incredible diversity within our districts. And the other piece of the report is that we're able to do projections of what our population will look like up until 2026. But if we really want to look at projections of what our community will look like, we need to look at our school districts. And that's where we really see that the face of this region is going to be very different once these school-aged youth are the leaders of our region. 
That's Margot Lamaster, Executive Director of Engage NWA with the Northwest Arkansas Council. She says the major driver in that growth is among Hispanic and Latino residents. The study shows by 2026, the region's Hispanic population is expected to grow from 17 to 19 percent. And this year, voters in Springdale will elect a new House representative for the state's first majority Hispanic district. The new boundaries of the House District 9 in Springdale were redrawn as part of the legislative map put forward in 2021 following the 2020 U.S. Census. We would like to see that those individuals are reflected of our region's diversity. Currently, you know, I think it's pretty obvious that they are not. Um, So there's a lot of work to be done there. But we hope that that's the direction that we're moving in for the future. Arkansas is also home to the largest population of Marshallese outside of the Marshall Islands. And a new generation of Marshallese Americans is now coming of age here in northwest Arkansas. J.R. Kiona is an intern for the Arkansas Coalition of Marshallese and a student at the University of Arkansas. On a rainy Saturday this October, he flicked through a stack of voter registration forms hoping to get more young Marshallese Americans like himself on the voting rolls. As far as uh, voting and registration, I believe it's uh, very important for uh, us kids to uh, be a part of what's going on in the community. Uh, just for our ben- the very beneficial for our future and for uh, what's coming up tomorrow. Also, uh, in order to um, live in a country that you'd want good leaders, you're supposed to take your part, take part, and do what you gotta do to make it the safest country as possible and vote the right people in. He says Arkansas is now home for many of these young Marshallese Americans, but it can often be difficult to engage this younger generation in voting, partly because they don't see much representation in local, state, or national government. Melissa Leilan is the director of the Arkansas Coalition of Marshallese. We do have, we've been actually doing, this organization has been uh, doing voter registration. We're really at an era where our Marshallese children that were born here, and they're American Marshallese, uh, they can now vote. So it is very important for us to ensure that uh, we have a space at the table. Uh, So we always want to make sure that our youth are you know, are engaged, um, because they, that's really the generation that we rely on to bring the, our issues that are affecting us to the forefront. She says while the number of eligible Marshallese American voters is still pretty small at only a couple hundred, they're representative of a broader community. Well, there has been a shift in population, I think. Uh, and actually, Northwest Arkansas has the largest concentration of Marshallese living outside of the Marshall Island. So with that said, all of the, there are social issues that we are faced with simply because we have a very different and very unique relationship with the United States. So what impact the Marshallese may be a little different. So it is very important for us to, to be in the forefront, to be engaged, to be running uh, at these elections uh, so that way our, you know, our uh, needs that are directly impacting us are brought to the forefront again. But still, she says getting voters to the polls can be difficult. And Joshua Price says for many people of color, and especially immigrant communities, the barriers to voting here are often broad. First off, there's just getting registered to vote. Arkansas ranks worst in the country for voter registration and is one of eight states where you have to register in person. Now you're creating a process where people have to 
print off a form if they have a printer or they can go pick up a voter registration form somewhere in person, maybe a library or the clerk's office, and then they have to physically fill it out and either physically take it to the clerk's office, drop it off in person, or they have to put a stamp on it and mail it in. And that doesn't sound like a lot, but for younger people, I don't know many young people that still send letters. And then number two, you have to register to vote 30 days before the deadline. And again, I don't know many people in 2022 who do anything 30 days before a deadline. He also says access has been a major problem for voters recently, as more counties cut down on polling sites. Pulaski County closed 24 polling locations this past year, while Washington County went from 58 to 41, and Benton County dropped from 49 to 35 locations. So those are some urban examples. For rural, I'll give you a couple that are pretty appalling. Uh, Van Buren County went from 21 polling locations down to four for the whole county. Um, And they tell me out there that about 20% of the voters now have to drive 20 to 30 miles one way to vote. Um, Yale County, which has a high Hispanic population, went from 25 down to nine polling places. Uh, Lafayette County, which is Stamps, Arkansas, which is a large African-American population, went from 12 polling locations down to three. Lincoln County went from 11 down to three. Cross County went from seven down to one. When you're closing polling locations, I, I mean, I understand that the concept of these are not highly populated counties. However, they're still geographically large. So, you know, you're, you're still asking people now to drive across the county. And also bear in mind that the county seat, which is normally going to have the, the one polling location, is not normally in the center of the county. And once voters get to the polls, something as simple as language or even cultural competency from poll workers can still keep them from confidently casting a ballot. Because another law says that um, when we, it's under appeal right now. We actually won this case, Arkansas United is part of it, but it's now under appeal with the Secretary of State's office that a volunteer can only assist up to six people per day, and that's the limit. So, But if you have an area with hundreds of Spanish-speaking voters, you know, each of our volunteers can only assist six people a day. They're exhausted pretty quickly, right? They hit that six-person limit really fast, and we don't have hundreds and hundreds of volunteers to be able to, just, uh, to bring in. So if you had a bilingual poll worker, bilingual poll workers can help an unlimited number of people. And Price says all of these factors contribute to low voter turnout among communities of color. And one of the ways he hopes to fix that is by getting more racially and ethnically diverse candidates on the ballot. I can't tell you how many times I've walked into a quorum court meeting or city board meeting and I'm I'm not only the only Asian in the room, sometimes I'm the only person of color. And I'm seeing, you know, leaders making decisions that affect my community and other communities of color. And there's literally no voice there to speak up on their behalf. I mean, I'll be really candid with you. I don't know what it's like to, let's say, be an African-American woman, right? I don't. I'm an Asian man. So how, how will, would like a white man or a white woman know what it's like to be Asian-American and have an immigrant parent or be Hispanic and have immigrant parents or be an immigrant themselves? I've had so many conversations where I bring up issues in immigrant communities and, and you know, like the decision staff, I had no idea that was a problem there. I'm like, well, it's like the main problem. I mean, do you talk to them? Do, do you ask them? Um, you invite them to have a, a seat at the table? Well, no. If you don't, if you don't know, how, you're not going to know what you don't know, right? So you have to open those lines of communication. And so, um, again, it, it, help, it hurts the community because they're not being represented. 
And Marco Lamaster says there needs to be more resources put to build the next generation of leaders from different backgrounds. And she hopes the data her organization provides will help play a part in that. We want organizations and individuals to use the report as a tool. So when you're looking internally at your organization, when you're looking at leadership, when you're looking at policies, when you're thinking about how do I create a more inclusive workplace, you know, you need to be aware of the data. Like I said, the, the mentorship, focus on developing that pipeline and those learning opportunities so that you do have the training and the skills um, to run for office and the support that's needed to run for office. I think all of those are important components. And Melissa Leilon says like many underrepresented communities, the Marshallese in Arkansas have made a home in the region. They work here, they pay taxes, raise their families, and contribute to the community. And she says they need a voice in local government. There's been a lot done, I will say, in the past 10 years. Um, you know, for example, the, uh, the ARCID program uh, extended to the Marshallese children, that was in 2018. Uh, before that, there was literally nothing afforded to the extended out uh, to the Marshallese children. So I feel like there is a lot then, but there's still a lot more to go. I mean, it's, you know, uh, we're still battling basic things like people getting their basic driver's license, uh, you know, those social determinants that make a, a healthy family, we're seeing a lot of those challenges. You can hear the full episode of Natural Election, plus find your polling place, your sample ballot, and much more by going to KUAF.com vote. Natural Election is a production of KUAF Public Radio and Ozarks at Large. Ahead this hour on Ozarks, a tribute to Toots Thielman, the legendary jazz harmonica player. It's taking place this weekend at Roots HQ. When Toots passed, we talked and we were like, you know, eventually we should do something for Toots, you know, but do it in, in a different way. Not just playing his repertoire like just like Toots would play, but do it in and travel and, and see where we, us, Kenny, me, we can go. KUAF's Robert Ginsburg brings us a preview later this hour. The Arkansas Department of Finance and Administration reports there was more than $21 million wagered on sports betting in Arkansas in September, the most ever bet in the state, smashing the previous mark of just more than $12.5 million wagered in June of this year. Talk Business and Politics reports the average daily wager on sports in Arkansas in September exceeded $700,000. Wagers can be placed through the state's three casinos and through apps offered from each casino. Dry weather and high fuel prices are causing problems for Arkansas soybean farmers. Following a wet spring planting season, growers have had to contend with an unusually dry summer, with some parts of the state not seeing rain for as many as two months. Haley Schaffner is a sixth-generation soybean farmer from northeast Arkansas and says some growers aren't able to afford higher fuel costs to run the irrigation wells needed to keep their crops watered during the drought. I know a few cases in which farmers simply ran out of money in the middle of the year and turned their wells off and their soybeans you know, never reached more than maybe a foot or so high. Blowing through our energy budget and our irrigation budget was probably the hardest thing. You know, Looking at the bottom line, I would say there are going to be a lot of farmers making difficult decisions, including some of our neighbors who've already made difficult decisions about whether or not farming is even feasible for them next year. Schaffner says dry weather also caused shipping delays along the Mississippi River, leading to lower soybean prices in the height of the harvest season. 
She says the goal for her 2,200-acre farm is to increase soil quality, limiting the need for artificial irrigation while also preventing erosion during flooding events. And the Arkansas soccer team is opening play in the SEC tournament tonight in Pensacola, Florida. Arkansas is the fourth seed and faces the number five seed Vanderbilt tonight. Arkansas is attempting to make it to the championship match for the seventh straight year. Arkansas, by the way, shut out Vandy 3-0 earlier this year. The Reflections Music Series and KUAF Public Radio present Pepe Rivero's The Four Seasons of Latin Jazz this Wednesday, November 2nd at 7 p.m. live from the Star Theater at Walton Arts Center. It's all part of Tertulia, a series of events this week featuring regional, national, and international citizen artists presenting their music, advocacy, and action for creative justice. Wednesday's performance is a recontextualization of Antonio Vivaldi's Four Seasons, influenced by the flavor cultures and rhythms of New York, Havana, Rio de Janeiro, and Buenos Aires. That's Wednesday beginning at 7 p.m. live right here on KUAF Public Radio. For more, KUAF.com. This is Ozarks at Large. I'm Kyle Kellams. I'm Anna Pope. In just a minute, we're going to have someone else join the conversation. But first, Anna, um, we're taking this time for this conversation to set something up that's going to be going on for the next several months at least. That's right. We are wanting to focus on rural issues. So uh, anything from especially focusing on the Ozarks, but really just taking a look at the state as a whole and uh, doing, as you said, this on a monthly basis. So right now we are going to do a story a month focusing on this. And right next to me, Jared came and this was, you came and approached us. Well, why is this important to you? Yeah, I'm Jared Phillips. Uh, I run a farm over with my wife over in Western Washington County, and I'm a professor here at the university. Um, and this is important to me for, I guess, a lot of reasons. I'm, I'm a son of the rural countryside, I guess, like a lot of us from the Ozarks. Um, and uh, I was, um, I'm always worried, I guess, probably overly, about um, rural spaces uh, and how they're being both perceived and also um, perceived, but also lost in a way, both as our population leaves, but then as as the urban spaces in the area expand, they kind of kind of bowl over unintentionally, I think, bowl over things that are already there. And so I, I thought it'd be interesting if we could start to talk more um, directly to to the kind of the KUEF area and say, hey, this is what's out here in the rural space. It's not just the beautiful fall foliage. It's not just the Buffalo River. It's also all these other really amazing and cool things, but also like we have problems in the rural space. And so like we want to talk about like what's good there, but also in the history of these things, we also want to talk about like like we need help in these areas. And this is this is a thing that we can do, you know, we can do to get better at. And so that's kind of where I was at. So, Anna, you, Jared, you're, you're going to be working together on some some of these stories, and you've already identified some that you're going to work on. Yes, right now, just kind of starting off with talking about century farmers and farm security and why they feel that way. And then, you know, going on the opposite end of that stick and talking to some of the farms that do not feel secure in their area and why that is. And not only, you know, um, talking about things that farmers or producers across the nation are feeling, but things that are specific to Northwest Arkansas or just Arkansas as a state. And um, we're focusing on that, but it'll be stories about, you know, um, uh, not only communities and not only problems, but also highlighting some some folk history or different things like that. Just trying to uh, get to know the area, but and talk about everything from 
loans to uh, you name it, we'll talk about it. Jared is someone who grew up in the rural Ozarks as well. I know that farm and rural aren't always the same thing. You can be rural without being farm. Yeah, we know nationally the Ozarks are not dissimilar um, from the national standards that like most people that live in the rural spaces are not farmers. Um, But farmers have, farmers kind of control the bulk of the land mass, right? And so we want to talk about agricultural communities and and agriculturalists. I am a farmer. I've got a vested interest in that. Um, But we also, you know, I want to talk about the the little towns and that that are still with us. You know, I want to talk about places like Kingston and St. Paul, but I also want to talk about what we've lost. I want to ask questions but well, what happened? Why did Cincinnati, you know, over in Western Washington County go away? What happened to Possum Trap, you know, where a friend of mine's family is from, you know, or Alabama? Um, and, and ask us and ask questions as we're moving, as our place is changing and our rural, more and more people are moving into the countryside. They're not all going to be farmers, um, but they're all people interested in rural lifeways and rural lifestyles. And they're going to bring their own preconceptions in. And that's great because we need that cultural dynamism to thrive as a place. But we also have valuable cultural traditions here. Um, and there's been conversations about how the Ozarks haven't had a culture. It's been a particular kind of culture. And that's not really true, both in history um, and in sort of in the current you know, moment. And so we want to highlight those sort of contradictions. And also talking about diversity. You know, there's a lot of different people that are moving in and, and also some people that are living in these rural spaces and that are dipping their toes into um, rural life and also agriculture and talking about how those those cultures are here you know we have a uh, second generation Marshallese that are here mm-hmm. now and, and different communities here so just talking about that dynamic and how those stories fit mm-hmm. into the greater yeah, realm of absolutely. things absolutely yeah and I'm glad you brought that up I spent uh, a recent Sunday morning outside at the Maysville Handy Stop. Yeah. So right there at the corner where Arkansas, Missouri, and almost Kansas mm-hmm. come together. And uh, my wife, my dog, and I were having breakfast out there. Biscuits and gravy. Yeah. I'm going to tell you, are very good. And um, it was amazing. And Maysville is this just kind of spot now. Mm-hmm. It, it used to be a, a trading post in the 1840s going into what was then called Indian Territory. But the Handy Stop is this general store, restaurant, gas station. And over the course of an hour, you saw bikers come in, people that looked like they were dressed for church, people who looked like they might have lived here for generations, white people, brown people, black people. It was really interesting. Yeah. That's the cool thing about the Ozarks, I think, and, and, and really even part, like even the larger history of Arkansas and, and southern Missouri is that we, 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 have a, we have a troubled past. We have a troubled history of racial, of, of racial erasure. Um, but we've always still, despite that, there has been pockets of resilience here uh, and that's that's part of our rural story. Like we have to own the bad, but we also need to make sure that we understand that it wasn't. Um, it, it's not as simple as that. And so we want to ask questions about well. All right, so like we need to talk about representation in agricultural spaces, for example. And so that that's that includes the BIPOC community, but also the LGBTQ plus community. Mm-hmm. And we know the Ozarks were, um, for whatever reason, in the 1960s and 70s, they were a place where members of the LGBTQ community came here and set up agricultural enterprises. You know, everything from dairy trucking cooperatives to uh, you know like organic gardening cooperatives. You know, and so like and that's a legacy that is still bearing fruit to this day in our region. And so we want to highlight all. All of these different stories and to, to both just sort of tell our past but also to say hey like if you're going to come here like come here knowing who we are and we're way more than a hillbilly and you know with overalls and a moonshine jug you grew up 
in farm life, right? Yes. So I grew up in uh, western Oklahoma, uh, half time, but yes, I grew up there and we uh, lived in uh, a very rural area. I can't necessarily call it a town. So (laughs) very small. But uh, yeah, so western central Oklahoma, um, different beef and wheat uh, farm, but yeah, so very familiar to me. So we've all knocked around some ideas. As you mentioned previously, you've got some ideas, but we're willing to hear others. Absolutely. Oh, yeah. Yeah, we need to hear. We know what we want to talk about. But we have our own blinders, right? Um, and so it's important for us to hear both from residents of the, of the rural space, like of our rural community, um, what they think is being missed, you know. Um, but we also, like, like, what do rural folks want to know about, about, I mean, what do urban folks, excuse me, want to know about rural life? You know, what is it? What, what are questions that they have, you know? That's great. Let's do it. And this expands to our whole listening area. So we're talking the Ozarks, but we're talking Oklahoma. We're talking uh-huh. the River Valley, Southern Missouri. Yeah, bring it on. So I've got Ken buried down south of the river. So yeah, let's, that's all. It's, it's all fair game. If I could get you to Baxter Springs, the first cow town in Kansas, which is not that far out of no. our broadcast. I'll drive anywhere. Let's right. do it. Elliot I got West. a Prius. Let's go. Yeah. <laughs> Elliot West, the distinguished professor emeritus from the University of Arkansas, used to tell stories of the one of the, one of the first of the first cattle drives in American history came through the Boston Mountains. If I got that wrong, he's going to revoke my graduate degree. <laughs> I just can't imagine doing a cattle drive through the Boston Mountains. I mean, he, he just was incredulous when he was talking about yeah. that. He just, I can't believe these people did that. All right. So how can people, if they have ideas, how can they reach us? Well, they can reach us in a number of ways. You know, we not only have social media where you can reach out to us directly, but also call us, email us. We have our contact information online at KUAF.com. Feel free to do any of number of those things, whatever mode that you're capable of, we'd love to hear from you. And Jared, as I was driving through Oklahoma and Arcan- rural Oklahoma and rural Arkansas recently, looking at all these hay bales, I definitely want to know more about hay. We can the, talk hay. The whole <laughs> business, how it happens, when it happens, why it happens. We'll do it in the spring when we're getting ready to cut again. Yeah. All right. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Thank you both. Thank, yeah. you. Thank you. Perfect. KUAF is giving away six registrations to the League of Women Voters of Washington County's second annual Dash for Democracy 5K and One Mile Fun Run Walk, November 12th at 9 a.m. in Veterans Memorial Park in Fayetteville. Winners announced Friday, November 4th during the noon edition of Ozarks at Large. KUAF.com to enter to win. And online registration is open now at lwvarwc.org. This is Ozarks at Large. Susan Campbell Bartoletti writes poetry, short stories, novels, and is best known for nonfiction work intended for younger readers. She does not shy away from difficult topics, and she does not underestimate her readers. She was awarded a Newbery Honor for her 2006 book, Hitler Youth, Growing Up in Hitler's Shadow, about Hitler Youth. She's also written about the Irish famine, the birth of the Ku Klux Klan, child labor in coal mines, and her most recent book, How Women Won the Vote. Thursday night, she'll discuss her work at the Fayetteville Public Library as part of this year's True Lit Festival. Last week, I talked with her and told her she seems to write books that offer readers examples of what courage can look like. Yeah, you've actually hit upon my uh, my theme, my subject. You know, one of the first discoveries a writer makes is, uh, in addition to her voice and her audience, but also her subject, and I like looking at the lives of people who ha- have lived through very difficult times. But I want to examine and explore their agency. 
you know, some survived, some did not survive, but where's the agency? And so, yeah, those are the, um, those are the stories I wanted as a kid. <laughs> well, and I think another thing you do as a writer, um, whether it's Kids on Strike or really any of your books, is you give respect to young people, to children, as human beings, emotional and, and the ability to, to alter the way we live. Yeah, and that's what I'm really looking for is um, role models. You just used that word, role models, examples of, you know, how can we stand up? How can young people stand up? And what I find is that young people are these political beings, and they don't like it when life is unfair, and they want to fix it. They don't want life to be unfair. And so that's one of the, the things that I am looking at when I am exploring a subject. I also imagine that you yourself have curiosity and you wouldn't mind if someone reading your work is, is more curious because of it. Oh, I hope so. I mean, curiosity is the one thing that I wish we could instill in not just our children, but in society as a whole, you know, um, because if you're curious about things, my goodness, you're never bored for one thing. And uh, all, also you're, you know, you're examining things. I, I think of our young people, they don't get enough credit for being at philosophers. And they are, you know, they ask the big questions and they want, you know, when they're, Young, they want um, an explanation. And as they are growing and getting older, they want more information. And so the youngest, our youngest readers, uh, children might be getting information from parents or other teachers, other adults, from their friends. But um, we always have to watch that information, right? <laughs> right, right. <laughs> and um, But as they're, you know becoming more independent readers, they're looking for that information on, on their own. Well, and what I, I really respect about the, the topics that you select and the books that you write is they're big questions. Like, how, how could fascism rise? And, and, you know, you cover that in Hitler Youth, growing up in Hitler's shadow. Mm -hmm. or, or how did the Klan evolve? And those aren't mm -hmm. questions that adults always want to, you know— engage in or answers that they want to provide. And, and that is true. They're not always comfortable providing the answers. And maybe because they don't have enough information themselves. Maybe it's because it's a subject that they're not comfortable with. And this is where good quality books come in. Because what we find as a society, when we don't have enough information, that's when um, rumors start. That's where conspiracy theories start. And by providing the information and factual information, uh, that's, you know, that's how we grow. When you're writing a book like Hitler Youth, Growing Up in Hitler's Shadow, and you're talking to some people who experience it and were eyewitnesses, can that be a difficult writing process for you? Oh, it's hard. Uh, as I was um, researching the, the um, Hitler Youth, and, you know, it all began with the question, 
that I had come across. I was, um, I read a lot and I read crazy, you know, not crazy stuff, but I mean, I read like old newspapers. I read um, anything that I can get my, my hands on. And I came across a statement from a journalist in 1945, an American journalist who claimed that Hitler rode to power on the shoulders of young people. And so like all of my books, it begins with a question. And my question was, is it true? Was this true? I had already talked to you about, you know, children not liking it when life isn't fair, right? And so how were they using their agency here? And so um, that I, I sought people out who were children and teenagers in Germany and German-occupied territories uh, during um, the years that we now know as the Third Reich. And I looked for them, the, the, these people who are now adults that, who had been part of the Hitler Youth. And some of them were very happy to talk with me and to tell me their experiences. And you can read those firsthand accounts in that book. Uh, others refused to talk to me. Hmm. But I also realized at that point I wasn't done, that I needed to also look at the experiences of Jewish children and teenagers uh, who would have been schoolmates. Um, and I, when I, I sought them out, and not one person refused to talk to me. And so these are the stories that um, show up in this book. I'm talking with Susan Campbell Bartoletti about the many books that she's written. She'll be part of True Lit Fest at the Fayetteville Public Library. The book, How Women Won the Vote, comes with these wonderful illustrations as well. And I'm always curious about the process when illustrator and writer work together. Is it a give and take? Is it here, here are some words, come up with an image? How does that work? <laughs> um, well, I can be bossy at times. <laughs> And so my job, um, my, my contribution to this book is, was, of course, the words, the story, and the research to support that. Uh, but also my contribution was to find the artifacts. And so when you look at the, the images and the ephemera that appear in this book that are photographs, et cetera, that are all contemporaneous from this um, time period, uh, that was, those are the things that I found. But I was also responsible for finding the, the references for the illustrator. And Zui Chen, uh, she did an amazing job, I think, because what, when you look at books that have black and white images only, um, there's a certain flatness to those mm-hmm. um, pages. But what she did was breathe life into the scenes that we, you know, that to be quickened with uh, an illustration. And so that, um, that was, and so we worked back and forth through the editor, like, um, you know, this um, Woodrow Wilson's Oval Office was this horrid green. (laughs) (laughs) And, you know, to find the right color to, and I'm like, oh, why did such a horrid color on those walls um because when she first did that illustration you know she i think it was blue and it was like oh yeah that's nice um but then um we find out I, and i want everything to be as factually accurate you know as it can be so that's that's how we worked together and and so it was just um it was just terrific having um her gift to this story 
do you ever get, say, more um, pushback or, or you know, some, some hesitancy when it comes to certain books that if people just read the titles, they might think, oh, that's more negative, like Hitler Youth, or they call themselves right. the Klan, as opposed to something that might be more positive by title, like How Women Got the Vote. Do you notice right. it? You know, yeah. Yeah, yeah I, I do. Um, with, for instance, they call themselves the KKK, which is a look at the birth of um, the Ku Klux Klan in our country. It's a book that focuses on the first wave um, that started after the Civil War. And, um, and so when you look at that cover, it's an actual um, clan hood on the cover. My editor and the, uh, the book designer wanted an in-your-face um, cover. And that is in-your-face. And I know that some people are uncomfortable with the cover. But then I kind of say to myself, well, should you be comfortable with this? Susan Campbell Bartoletti will speak Thursday night at 6 at the Fayetteville Public Library as part of the 2022 True Lit Festival. Anna Gray is speaking tonight, and Kay Ming Chang will speak tomorrow night. You can find out more about the festival at faylib.org. And you can find out more about Susan Campbell Bartoletti at susancampbellbartoletti.com. The Springdale Public Library will team with Arkansas PBS for a free screening and public forum about the Holocaust Sunday afternoon. Selected clips from the documentary The U.S. and the Holocaust will be shown, followed by a panel discussion emphasizing immigration then and now, with conversations about related topics like xenophobia, anti-Semitism, and population quotas. This event, free and open to the public, begins Sunday afternoon at 1.30 at the Springdale Public Library. And speaking of public libraries, the Bentonville Public Library will host a Friends of the Library book sale Thursday from 5 to 7 p.m. The sale is for Friends of the Library only, and you can learn more by going to bentonvillelibrary.org. KUAF is supported by Fayetteville Animal Shelter and Services, supported by the City of Fayetteville, and dedicated to the welfare of animals and the people who associate with them. Information at 444-3456 or Fayetteville Animal Services on Facebook. There are a few shows left at the Roots HQ before the venue closes its doors late this year including Friday night's presentation from the Northwest Arkansas Jazz Society. It's going to be a celebration of the centennial of jazz legend Toots Thielman. Gregoire Marais and Kenny Warner are about as appropriate a duo to perform the music of Thielman as is possible. Warner was Thielman's pianist for two decades, and Marais is critically considered Thielman's heir apparent on the harmonica. Recently, Robert Ginsburg, host of KUAF's Shades of Jazz, spoke with Marais. Gregoire Marais, thank you for taking some time to speak with me in anticipation of your concert here with Kenny Werner. Your musical background begins in Switzerland, where you were born, and I understand you were part of a musical family. Yeah, so my father was an amateur musician, played banjo with a really, really good band, but more traditional jazz, you know. And then uh, my brother started playing the vibraphone as a, a young kid probably about when he was five. And then I, st- I started much later, but I was always about music. I always loved music, but I, I, I wasn't serious on an instrument until I was a teenager. And I started the harmonica, and uh, eventually I decided that uh, I couldn't really study anymore or any longer in uh, in Switzerland, so I decided to, to come to the U.S. And uh, because my mother is from, from New York, so it was relatively easy for me to, to come here. 
And uh, then I went to the new school for a couple of years, graduated. And then eventually I stayed because I was doing really amazing and really interesting stuff here, you know. The the first music that I heard with my father was Louis Armstrong, King Oliver, Duke Ellington, you know. That had a huge influence on me, you know, the, the, just the, the sheer beauty of the melodies and the intensity of what they were playing and the, the mastery of how they were improvising and interacting. I thought it was just incredible. That was like the early, early stage for me of, of getting, falling in love with music and, and being really passionate about music. And eventually I grew to uh, love jazz, but trying to basically uh, explore more than than this side only of jazz. So I went and started listening to bebop and then to hard bop and then eventually listened to Miles Davis, Coltrane. Those guys just uh, left uh, something that indelible in me, you know, like that forever is uh, is there. And eventually I, I started listening to other music, you know, like uh, world music and and I just uh, kept on exploring and I'm still exploring, trying to learn about new stuff and, and being uh, uh, influenced and um, inspired by, by different places in the world and different type of cultures. been listening to a live performance that took place on April 30th, 2022 as part of the International Jazz Day celebration. And that was an all-star concert with Gregoire Marais on harmonica, Edmar Castaneda on the Colombian harp, Helio Alves on piano, Terry Lynn Carrington on drums, Pedrito Martinez on percussion. Gregoire, your career has seen you perform with some of the greatest musicians alive, including people like Herbie Hancock and George Benson, Pat Metheny, Dee Dee Bridgewater. The list goes on and on, and a lot of diverse styles of music. So what are the challenges of bringing your fingerprint into the mix of being a sideman with all these diverse musicians? I'm passionate about music and not about one particular style. You know, so as long as it touches me, I feel like the music is really meaningful and I feel I can really, there's something for me to say, I'll, I'll be all in, you know, it's always keeping me on my toes. Like I, I just always have to, to find a way to address this particular music instead of just playing what I know, you know, I have to find something maybe different and really pay attention to the details and, and really understand that, okay. I'm, I need to practice. I need to to get some sort of new vocabulary on my instrument that could really address this particular type of music, whatever whatever it may be, you know. So that's I find it really really interesting. So for instance, when I had the chance to play with the Pat Metheny group, 
it was a very unique aesthetic, you know. So I really had to pay attention and, and really, like, immerse myself in this world for months to kind of try to really speak the language, you know. And I felt it was the same when I got to play with Cassandra Wilson. I, I really had to, to spend a lot of time just really just listening to the music and what I could bring to this music. It's always been like that, where I've really had to first uh, literally really pay attention and listen and eventually come up with certain things. And as time will allow me to, to, to grow, I, I would start to really understand what could be my role in this particular band, you know. Someday he'll come along, the man I love, and he'll be big and strong, the man I love. And when he comes my way, I'll do my best to make him stay. He'll look at me and smile, I'll understand. And in a little while, he'll take my hand. And though it seems absurd, I know we both won't say. Cassandra Wilson performing along with Gregoire Marais on his self-titled CD. When you perform in Fayetteville on November 4th, it will be a very intimate setting. It will just be you and Kenny Werner, and Kenny is a world-renowned piano player who also happened to be a sideman for Toots Thielmans for almost 17 years. And this tribute concert really would have been Toots's centennial year. He passed away in 2016, I believe. Born Jean-Baptiste Thielmans in 1922 in Brussels, Belgium, Toots, as he became known, was the undisputed master of the harmonica. Thielmans never really studied music. He had been raised on the swing era stylings of gypsy guitar genius Django Reinhardt, and by the 1950s he was playing all over Europe with Benny Goodman, Roy Eldridge, and Zoot Sims. Thielmans had become increasingly popular in studios after he moved to the United States as a harmonica player, but also as a whistler. And in that capacity, he recorded jingles for companies like Firestone, Singer, and Old Spice. Over the years, his harmonica playing had been featured on many movie soundtracks, including Midnight Cowboy, The Getaway, Sugarland Express, and he also played the feature solo in the theme for Sesame Street. And you were friends with Toots Thielmans. Jazz harmonica players don't have that many role models, and Toots certainly provided one for you, although your style is quite different. But you and Kenny got together nonetheless. Could you tell me a little bit about that? When Toots passed, we talked and we were like, you know, eventually we should do something for Toots, you know, but do it in, in a different way. Not just playing his repertoire like just like Toots would play, but do it in 
and travel and, and see where we, us, Kenny, me, we can go, you know. Uh, and because I think that would make him proud, you know. It would it would be places that maybe Tootsies would have not thought about and and he would have been excited to hear his music being played in this way, in this different way. So basically that was the approach. And it's been so much fun that uh, it's been kind of just a, a pure joy to do this, you know. Here's a recording of Kenny Warner and Gregoire Murray from a live concert. Kenny is introducing the tune. One thing I want to say just about the tribute, obviously when Toots died, there were a lot of harmonica players that had an idea of doing a tribute. I was getting a lot of phone calls, you know. Uh, but I said, you really have to talk to his management, you know, what they want to do. They suggested we started by doing a gig at the Toots Thielmans Festival in Belgium, in his hometown. Gregoire's who they wanted because they knew that he was Toots' favorite player. There's also, I mean, I don't blame anybody for sounding like Toots. It's kind of, everybody does. It's almost like if you're going to play jazz, regular jazz, you know, tunes, standards, chords, it's kind of hard not to sound like Toots Thielman. He's like the foundation of it. So everybody does. But um, they, they picked Gregoire for the same reason he picked Gregoire, uh, because he doesn't sound that much like Toots, and he doesn't try to. Mm -hmm. So a memorial concert, a memorial tour would have had a very eerie feeling to me of like, oh, somebody's playing the part of Toots Thielman's, you know. Instead, we're experimenting on that music, and I don't even know who would be pleased with it, but I know he would. Mm -hmm. So we are doing tunes that are from different periods of Toots Tielemans. It's just amazing to us uh, how much of an effect he had on so many different areas and people in music. And yet, what he cared the most about was moving forward, you know, modern. He really, you know, not as a style, as a philosophy. Keep searching, you know. And so we're trying to do him honor by just doing that. So the next piece we're playing is from uh, something he recorded on his Brazil project, which is kind of amazing. Uh, I like to say that most of the time people will say Brazilian music had an effect on them. And Toots, a European musician from Belgium, actually is one of the few people you could say had an effect on Brazilian music. So this is something he recorded called Chega de Saudade.
Gregoire Murray spoke with Robert Ginsburg last week. The tribute to Toots Thielman takes place Friday night at Roots HQ in downtown Fayetteville. You can learn more at digjazz.com. You can hear Robert Ginsburg host Shades of Jazz every Friday night at 10 on 91.3 KUAF. Then every Saturday from 11 a.m. until 1 p.m. on KUAF 3. Hey, everybody, this is Ryan Versi, KUAF's underwriting director. Did you know KUAF sends three email newsletters sharing everything that's going on at your public radio station to a list of 8,000 people each week? And did you know that we have more than 3,000 daily listeners to our online streams? You can reach all of that audience with digital ads on our website and newsletters. To learn more about digital ads on KUAF, email me at ryan at KUAF.com. That's R-Y-A-N at KUAF.com. Tomorrow on Ozarks, Reza first saw magic performed in elementary school. Now he makes tour buses disappear, and he does magic with Oreo cookies, too. I made an airplane appear, a tour bus disappear, those types of things. People will, will go away talking sometimes about this Oreo cookie. Reza will be at the Jones Center in Springdale Saturday, and we ask him about being an illusionist and perfectionist on tomorrow's Ozarks at Large at noon and at 7, and by going to the Ozarks at Large podcast. Plus... How would an immunologist explain the work of a pandemic response lab to a group of third graders? That's a great question. And I guess I would say that the scientists are going to go into their labs and they're going to study these germs that can make us sick, but we're going to use this, you know, this, this money from the government to study these germs and to be able to prevent them from making us sick before they ever have a chance to. The University of Arkansas for Medical Sciences will use a nearly $8 million grant from the National Institutes of Health to expand its infectious disease lab and pandemic response work. We'll hear from Dr. Dan Voth tomorrow. This is 91.3 KUAF, Fayetteville, Fort Smith, Springdale, and Grove, Oklahoma. Contributors today included Daniel Carruth, Anna Pope, Jared Phillips, and Robert Ginsburg. Matthew produced the show inside the Bruce and Ann Applegate News Studio 2. Additional material heard on today's show provided by the news team at KUAR, Public Radio for Little Rock. You can hear more news from across the region tomorrow morning and every weekday morning at 5.30 and 7.30 with Daniel Carruth reporting from the Karen Taha News Studio. Thank you for being with us here today. We return tomorrow with a show at noon and a special live music show tomorrow night at 7.